0: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre.
1: This podcast contains discussions of gender-based violence, self-harm, and suicide, which may be distressing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Associate Professor Holly High from the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University in Australia. Holly is the author of Project Land, Life in a Lao Socialist Model Village, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2021. Project Land tells the story of New Kandon Village, a resettlement village set up by the government to rehouse a Katu community in the highlands of Laos. Welcome, Holly. Thanks, Michelle. It's great to be here. Holly, I'd like to start by asking you, what brought you to write this book?
0: This was a book that I wrote after... Hearing some incredible stories in a really remarkable village in Laos. I didn't go looking for remarkable stories. I was looking to find a new field site in Laos. I wanted to study ethnic minorities. And through a series of coincidences and mishaps, I ended up being directed towards what is, in fact, a model village in Laos. So I was not the first anthropologist to be directed to this village. Uh, while I was there, a lot of development. Workers and Thai study groups coming to study culture and other villages looking to study how to enact government policies were also directed to this village. So my study turned into a study
1: of what it is to be successful
0: in Laos politically.
1: So you're interested in the sorts of success politically that are available to grassroots people, in this case, the Gatun. What in particular interested you about this group of ethnic minority peoples?
0: As I said, they were held up as a model village. So I suppose one of the things that I learned in the process of this research is some of the stability of the Lao People's Democratic Republic regime in Laos is the way it's been able to colonise people's ideas of success. So this is a topic I touched on in my previous book, Fields of Desire, where I was talking about people's aspirations for the future. But what I hadn't appreciated before was how much models and emulation were also important in solidifying the regime. And so when I went, did this second study and ended up in Gandon village, I found myself in the midst of a, a village that was put on display about what policies look like when they're done right. And what the best case scenario is for people when they do follow the policies and do actually implement them. A lot of people who have written about politics in Laos before have said there's a big gap between policy and implementation. So often studies of policies there have been studies of policy failure. But when I went to Gandon, I found myself in the midst of claims to success that they had this policy and the village were asked to carry out these activities and they did it and, and look at this and how can others achieve a similar success. But that's only half the story. As I said, I wasn't the first anthropologist to go there either. And it's been a bit of a magnet, I guess, by Laos studies terms for anthropologists, not as much as the north of Laos, but in terms of the south of Laos, I'd say that Gattu are one of the most intriguing ethnic groups from a sort of classic anthropological point of view. As one older French anthropologist said to me, it's like they secretly read Levi-Strauss and decided to act out a structuralist joke for the benefit of anthropologists. Like, Like if you think you've seen structuralism, you haven't seen anything yet until you've been to a, a Gandan village they have this incredible symmetry in their in their marriage patterns and in their rituals and so that's attracted a lot of interest and i guess the other part of my study was looking at this definition of culture the anthropological definition of culture and how that sort of attracts a certain interest from me and from others, and how these these ideas still have a grip on people in Gandan. But then there's this other definition of culture, which is the definition in Lao cultural policies in the Lao PDR definition of culture, which is really heavily influenced by Marxist-Leninist concepts of culture. So partly the book is also about these divergent concepts of what it is to be cultured. In Lao policy documents, culture, Watanatam, is really about self-improvement. It's about being agentive. It's about reviewing what you're doing, self-critical and thinking, okay, what is the best of the old and what is the best of the new and throwing out the, the worst of the old and, and embracing the best of the new people spoke about culture as looking all around the world and and looking at what works and what's what's fine and beautiful and worthy and adopting that as well as holding on to the beautiful and worthy parts of Lao heritage. So you can see it's really aspirational and it's about improvement whereas what often was attracting interest from anthropologists and tourists interested in having a cultural experience was the idea that they'll be stepping into something pristine and untouched and exotically different. So partly the book is about observing that disjuncture and also experiencing it myself in the process of being an anthropologist in that village.
1: And, of course, that's something we see in many places across Southeast Asia, that dissonance between the living museum that people hope to see and reality, especially where development's been at play. But I wanted to return to this field site first. And, of course, animism plays a really important role in this story because some in the community believe that the abandonment of the old settlement of Old Gundon had led its spirit to cause misfortune for residents. Can you tell us a bit more about the community's animism and how it affected their understandings of what happened after they moved to New mm. So uh, in
0: 1997, the entire population of Old Gandon moved to the foothills of the Bolivan Plateau in Tadeng district of Seikong province with the stated objective of being more accessible to schools and roads and all of the promises of Lao developmentalism. And a few years later in 2001, 87 people abandoned the new settlement and went and reestablished the old village. So in My book, I have descriptions of both villages, although I spent a lot more time in New Gandan. So most of the chapters are heavily focused on New Gandan, but I do turn to Old Gandan towards the end of the book. And that comparison is always there. It's always there in people's stories, in their representations, in their thinking about how much had changed and what they were doing in New Gandan. As they used to say, really, there's only one Gandan, but also they would reflect on the differences between the old and the new. So one of the really important parts of the story of the people going back in 2001 the ones who abandoned the resettlement was they said that they had no choice jump in they said it's necessary because a spirit that they call gianu was uh, causing an epidemic in the new village and they thought the only way to stop this epidemic was to go back and live there. They said Ginu wants people to live in the old village and observe the old ways. The majority of people in Ugandan did not support this story. There were other stories about why there had been an epidemic. Another one was that they hadn't known about the spirits of the new place. Some people said there was an ahak there, that the previous inhabitants of that area, who were a group of about 50 alak, Ethnic Alak people had observed what they said was a golden stone stingray moving around in a pond, and they said this was the spirit of the place. And when the new they were they were relocated out to live by the road to make way for the settlers from Gandon. And eventually, when this epidemic was going on, the Alak people came back and said, "Maybe it's because you're not uh, worshipping this stone stingray." And they passed on the knowledge of how to do that. They actually paid the people of Gandan to take on this responsibility of worshipping the Ahak. You would think that if you pass on knowledge to newcomers maybe the people passing on the knowledge would be paid, but it was actually the other way around. It was like they were paying off the Gandon people to take on this very serious responsibility of caring for the Ahak. So most people there in New Gandon think it's because they didn't know about the Ahak. Other people said that it was because the area had been heavily contested during the Second Indochina War. And uh, that was one reason why the population was so low and why it was selected as a resettlement site is it had been a battlefield. Some settlers thought that they had suffered a lot of deaths when they arrived because they said it's like a tax when you arrive in a new place of course the spirits in the soil will take their tax and when they're full when they're satisfied they'll stop so another thing that they organized and this was organized by the village chief was a buddhist exorcism and of course these people aren't buddhist but they hired a buddhist from what was now a nearby town and um, Tateng and they made a boundary around the village and they retrieved a stone from the river and planted it in the middle of the village and stones at points around the outside and then they shot guns to scare the ghosts out of that territory Uh, so that was the third thing they did and then fourthly there was an anthropologist a, a Japanese anthropologist living in the village at the time and he said the epidemic was probably cholera which is very sad. As the village chief said to me when he was thinking about this, he said, we came from a place that had pure mountain water. So when we moved down here to a crowded foothills area, it wasn't a surprise to me that many people died. So estimates of how many people died in this epidemic out of a 1,000 people, about 75 to 100 is the estimates I've heard, but there was no clear records kept of this. There were very detailed records kept by the village chief of other things like how many nails and bits of corrugated iron they were given on resettlement, but I wasn't shown any clear records of how many people died in the epidemic. And people say they tried to get medical help, but there was never any treatment. People talked about walking into town with their, you know, feverish two year olds and being told at the hospital, there's nothing wrong with your child. And then the child dying there at the hospital. And it was people of all ages. It wasn't just children, it was old people, teenagers. So. It was obviously a very distressing time for them and a real scar. People, when I was there, spoke about having no food. They said, So all we did was eat the green bananas from the village next door that had set up a commercial um, banana plantation and they generously gave away, but they were still green. So it was a really tough time. But by the time I arrived there, Things were more settled. Um, They had irrigated rice fields. They had some garden area. Some people had jobs on a rubber plantation. A lot of people were working for the military. I did a survey and the military was the largest employer in the village. So they were, within Lao terms, relatively
1: prosperous uh, village. It's not really surprising given that traumatic experience that they were looking for something to explain their experience And in the book, you really identify two key characters, two chief protagonists, the village head, Wipat, who you've already mentioned, and his brother-in-law, who embody these opposing positions. Can you tell us a bit more about these two men and why they're so important in your telling of the story? So this is
0: a story that I tell in the opening of the book to try to guide readers into seeing that there's not just one perspective on Gandan and not just one perspective on the changes they've been through, but there is really just one way of having your story affirmed by the larger political situation in Laos. So uh, Wepat is the village chief in New Gandan. He told me that he was responsible for arranging the relocation back in 1996-97. He said that... Prior to that, the village was run by a council of elders and when the idea of resettlement had been raised with them, they had said, we're happy here, we're fine, thank you, we don't need it. And in a way they had the, the ability to say that because the village had been very important in the revolution. That village has been described by Yves Goudinot as the centre of the Patet Lao in the south of Laos. So they were like the headquarters of the revolution in the south. And so they had the political clout to resist, pressures to relocate, but Weepat looked at his life and felt that it wasn't what he'd fought for. He was involved in the revolution from when he was a teenager and he was expecting access to medical care and education for his children and change, basically. And then in the years directly after the revolution, he didn't see these changes and he saw the village of elders seeming quite content with what they had. But he described to me, you know, when people were sick, he had to carry them, physically carry them for three days to get medical care over really mountainous terrain. And he had some of his own children die on trips like that. And he wrote to the village chief and he said, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to live in a place where there is medical care and my children can expect an education. I want to live near a road. I want to have services. And he wrote in secret and they wrote back also in secret saying, we can arrange this for you, but you need to get people on side. So he used the party structure. As I said, this village had been involved in the the Communist Party and then the Lao People's Revolutionary Party since the late 1940s. So it was very well established uh, by this period. So he used his position in the party to introduce this idea to other people. And he recorded all of this meticulously, including the fact that even when he was just sharing it with other party members, not all of them agreed but they have the principle of democratic centralism in the party, which is that even if not everybody agrees, it's majority rule, and once a decision is made, everybody has to go along with that decision, no more dissenting after the decision is made. So he recorded all of this in a journal, which he shared with me, about um, how he disseminated this idea first through the party structure and then more openly in the village. And the whole way he records that there was not consensus but that it had majority support in the village. So over many years, they negotiated the terms of this resettlement and eventually secured the, the area near Tateng which was called Dok Lok, before they moved in. And they had, you know, historical links for this area. It was, as I said before, an Alak area where they previously traded for raw cotton. So they were familiar with the area.
1: So this principle of democratic centralism where you agree finally to the majority decision held when they actually moved, but it didn't hold after that, did it? And Wipat's brother-in-law was a big part of the opposition to this position. That's right, and it's interesting to think about
0: how he presented himself not as a dissenter because under democratic centralism, dissent is not allowed. It's against the law. So as I said, Weepat was himself personally, in many ways, responsible for the relocation of this village. And when I first knew Weepat and heard this story, he did mention that in 2001, 87 people left, and I was quite surprised about this. And I wanted to know more about it. And I said, "Oh, why did they go?" And tell me more about it. And Weepat was not very forthcoming. He just said, "Bojaknom kau," like I wouldn't know what they were thinking. You know, very dismissive. So, I was surprised then when one day when I was staying at Weepat's house, a man arrived, and Weepat was very excited to tell me, Look, this is one of the people from Old Gandan. He's just arrived. He's just walked three days to be here. And I learned that this man was married to a woman who was the wife of one of Weepat's wives. And so they were, um, they referred to each other as Ayas, which is basically somebody who's in the same marital relationship to the same family descent line I guess so they're both in marrying men to the same line so they were like brothers and in the book I refer to them as brothers of the it could have been me variety like Weeper married one woman he could have just as easily married her sister according to sort of kinship patterns amongst the gadu so they were kind of like brothers-in-law but also parallel lives I guess so Weepat was very friendly with his brother-in-law, very solicitous, you know, honoured guest sort of things while he was staying in New Gandon. And this man invited me to go up to Old Gandon and visit him. They have telephones, but they don't have telephone signal up there and there's no electricity or anything. So in these situations, your word is very important. And so, of course, I said, I'll definitely come and visit you. And we made a plan and didn't quite... Managed to make it on time, but we were probably about six weeks late by the time we finally got round to arriving up there in the village. And then uh, it was We who uh, facilitated my trip up there to Old Gandan. And when we got there, I found out more about this man's decision to leave New Gandan and re-establish Old Gandon. And he was very careful to phrase it not as a choice but as a necessity, as he said many times, "Jump in." So. Uh, I think that's important in terms of thinking about the space for agency that ordinary people have under conditions set by democratic centralism. So when a decision is reached and dissent is no longer allowed, democratic centralism is meant to play out like this that the goal is for as many people to express their opinions as possible and all voices are heard and there's usually a long period of consultation uh, which is very diligently recorded and then a call for a vote is made and then a majority carry the day and after that dissent is not allowed. So how was it that this man was able to take Himself and 86 other people out of the resettlement program after the village as a group had decided to go ahead with this. Well, the way he phrased his entire decision making around this was by pointing to spiritual forces well beyond his control. So he talked about the kianu, which was a stone just outside the village. It was a stone in the ground covered with roots and moss. And he said that this. Stone was used to being worshipped by the people. They used to sacrifice a buffalo at it once a year and that when the people moved away, they stopped doing this and that explains the epidemic. And he said, furthermore, people in his family had fallen under bad influences, engaged with the cash economy maybe for the first time and got into debt and sold the crop when it was still green and they had nothing to eat when it came to harvest. And that, in addition to losing his own parents to the epidemic and children. So he he phrased himself as having no choice. And old Gandon at that time was still under pressure to move. So when I was there, the district authorities were suggesting that they move into a focal site village or maybe move into the new district capital. And when I was there, the people were talking about this and, and saying, oh, you know, the more we talk about it, the more we see these fireballs coming out of the stone on the edge of the village. And we know that's a warning that the Ginu doesn't want to let us go.
1: Fascinating. And that interplay between the two villages becomes really clear when you tell that story. I want to turn to two other key characters in the books. These are two women, Sum, who's a local trader and moneylender who probably was dabbling a bit in some sex work on the side, and Leha, who was a weaver. Can you tell us a bit about them but also what you learnt from them and other women in the village?
0: Mm, great. Uh, thank you. Well, they're actually the best of friends. <laughs> And both with quite tragic stories and both ultimately very strong women. Uh, So Sum had a particularly difficult, she was born and grew up in Old Gundon well before the resettlement and she had the misfortune of being an orphan and she said she then fell under the care of an uncle who mistreated her and was violent and she says that he starved her and she, in fact, is extremely short today. My oldest son is eight now, and I reckon he'll be taller than some already. She comes up to about my chest, and everybody, her nickname is the little one. But she's very um, engaging and, and chatty. And she was a child when the village relocated to New And she and her sister and brother were all under the care of this uncle. And Sum and her brother went away to work. She worked in a factory. So that's quite unusual in Gandan, I'd say, compared to other villages. They have many fewer young people going off to do that kind of seasonal agricultural labor and factory work by contrast to other villages i know this village like to keep the young people close or in government jobs so she did that and that was and she spoke about how you know for the first time she had to do things like work out how buses work and work out how she could use telephones and and these things so i think it really broadened her horizons a lot but when she was at the factory she had these horrible violent dreams about her sister like blood everywhere and she was so worried about her sister that back then her sister didn't have a telephone she couldn't call her So she was so worried, she went all the way from Vientiane back to Gandon, which would have been at least two days on public transport in those times. And she arrived to find, unfortunately, her sister had already committed suicide. And the circumstances were that her uncle had arranged a marriage for her that she didn't agree with. And she felt totally powerless to say no. So she had married this man and then immediately committed suicide. So this was a really obviously catalyzing moment in Sum's life and she decided she wasn't going to go back to the factory. She was going to stay in on, but she was going to live on her own and establish her own house. So when I met her, she was living in this small shack, getting by by um, lending money, trading in rice and selling little commodities in a shopfront. And she was extremely forthcoming compared to other young women in the village. Of course, she had that experience speaking Lao, so she was much more confident using Lao to talk to people from outside the village. And she was really interesting and, and she was a storyteller, you know, and she she bucked other conventions in other ways as well. Like she wore jeans around instead of wearing weavings and she hated the smoking, the pipe smoking that other people did and that which is almost like a cultural emblem of, of this village, smoking the long bamboo pipes. But she sort of would cough if people lit up near her. And there were other ways that she really struck out on her own and experimented with how she could be a woman not located in one of these patrilineal households that are the traditional structure of a Gandan, of a Agatdo village. And her friend, Liliha, had taken the other path available, uh, which was to conform with these conventions. So her story, which is also very sad, was that uh, she was about 13 years old when the village resettled. So she had grown up with a loving family in Agandong. Both her mother and father were big figures in her life. So she wasn't an orphan, but when they relocated, um, they didn't have much money and they felt that their chances for the resettlement going well would be better with the more money that they could get together. So she was 13 at the time. And so she was betrothed to her 13-year-old cousin and there was a bride price that was paid for her. Usually it's eight or or 12 items valuable items like gongs and ceramic jars and buffaloes so quite a substantial amount of money I can't remember the exact figure but it would have been in the thousands for this wedding so that money was really valuable for her family succeeding in the resettlement and also the other benefit of the match was that the family she was marrying into were comparatively wealthy and her parents thought that if she was with them she would have a better chance of surviving and doing well in the upheavals of the resettlement. And actually, she they were so wealthy that when they first resettled, they were able to afford to live in Tardeng Township while the village was being established. And that's where she lived for the first couple of years of her marriage. And while she was in Tardeng she met a, a Lao man. Uh, I don't know much about him. He seems like a ne'er-do-well to me, but she she fell in love with him. She was only 13 or 14 years old and she got pregnant, uh, but she was married to this man who was in, the, in New Gandon. And so she was living with her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law said, well, you keep the baby. Uh, but it's, you know, the father is is your husband and you never see that Lao man again unless he can pay the bride price. And the bride price was thousands of dollars and he just left town, the Lao man, I think. So she went back. She was forced to leave Tardang and go back to this new Gandong, which was obviously going through a cholera epidemic and very lots of upheaval, food shortages, and to try and carry out the pregnancy and give birth there. And she says when it came the day to give birth, she was told she had to do it alone to leave the village and just do it somewhere in the forest by herself, uh, which she did. She said, thank God, eventually someone came and looked for her because she did end up hemorrhaging. You know, She gave birth to a live baby, but she hemorrhaged and they took her to a nearby clinic and luckily saved her life. But the child only lived for 10 days. And after that, she was never able to get pregnant again. But she did stay with that man, her cousin's left husband, and they were still living together when I met them. But when I met her, she was going through a real period of, you know, thinking what if, like what if the baby had lived or what if I'd managed to stay with that Lao man or what if somebody had just cared for me more. Then, then the baby might have lived and I might have had more babies. She was really sorrowful that she hadn't been able to have her own children after that first attempt. And the couple were going through lots of sort of divinations to see why it was that they were infertile. And she spent a lot of time then talking to me about how unhappy she was and i guess the context was this of this was she was an excellent weaver and she weaved a lot you know on commission and stuff and it didn't seem to make any economic sense to me like when i asked her how much she was being paid for these weavings versus the cost of the inputs i was like this you're hardly making any money at all you'd be better off going for a day to work in the asparagus plantation or something but she she seemed to really get something out of it so i was like well will you teach me how to weave so we sat together for many hours Her trying to teach me how to weave. And what I learned in the end was that weaving is suffering. And if you're not suffering when you're weaving, maybe this isn't for everyone just in this context, if you're not suffering when you're weaving, you are literally not doing it right. I heard it so many times. They were like, Does it hurt? And I thought they were concerned for my well being. I'll be like, No, no, it's fine. It's not hurting me. And they're like, Well, then you're doing it wrong. Hold it tighter. (laughs) (laughs) so um so I was like okay so weaving is meant to hurt and we would sit here and weave and she would tell me these laments about this tangle she'd gotten in with her Cousin husband, who she said, you know, he could divorce her and then the bride price would be forfeited. But if she tries to divorce him, then her brother would have to pay twice the bride price just to buy her freedom. And he couldn't do that because he'd already spent the bride price on buying his own wife. And so she had nowhere to go and no one to turn to. But often she'll come back to the fact that my only hope is that my husband might divorce me, but he won't do that because he loves me so much, even though we've never been able to have children he would never leave me. So there was this tangle that she felt she was in where every chance for freedom was was cut off. And I want to emphasize too that this was a particular point of time. So this fieldwork went over 10 years. And it was interesting that when I came back on a later trip, she said, you know, I want to talk to you about when I was going through that period, I was really unhappy with my husband. But, you know, things are different now. I feel wiser now. And she still talked about the child that she lost, and but she wasn't as as fixated on it. Yeah, I think if you compare these two stories of these, you know, in many ways the best of friends, these two women, they'd taken very different Pals and Lilyha, you know, she'd had her dalliance with her, she'd made her mistake with her Lao lover. And after that, she tried really hard to conform to the image of a good, faithful wife. She didn't play around again after that. She stuck with her husband. She stayed in the house weaving. She grew crops. She was friendly to everyone. You know, she lived in this crowded household with her husband and her husband's parents and his brothers. And like there would have been 40 people living in that house. She said it was very crowded and uncomfortable, but she didn't abandon any of it. Whereas Sum had chosen really to strike out on her own and, you know, reject a lot of these things. She didn't weave. She didn't even wear weavings. She lived on her own. But I think that they were both united in a way in in feeling out what the possibilities are for women under socialism in Laos. You know, the Lao People's Revolutionary Party came in partly under the promise of delivering equality for ethnic minorities and for women, and both of them phrased the changes they'd seen in their lives using this language. So partly in my book I write about how Socialism might not have achieved gender equality, but it's certainly given women a language to talk about it in.
1: That's really interesting. And that contrast is so striking. And it leads me to a next set of questions, which I have, which take a bit of a step back and think about some of the theoretical and methodological concerns of the book. And one of the key methodological points you make is that Lao socialism should be studied on its own merits. Can you talk us through this, maybe referencing the stories you've just told us, and explain what the implications of your position are for your scholarship?
0: Mm. Looking at Liliha and Sum and the way socialism had permeated into the way they narrated their own lives and the lives of the important women in their lives shows us that you can't confine socialism in Laos to the dustbins of history. And that's perhaps bucking against the trend that was evident up until recently in Laos studies to classify Laos as a post-socialist state. Post-socialism was a concept that gained a lot of currency after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, when a lot of scholars got access to these countries and started studying social transformation after the fall of various socialist regimes. And so this created a sort of great outpouring of scholarship. There was a lot of vibrancy in post-socialist studies at the time and in many ways I think Lao studies somehow got caught up in this um, post-socialist wave. But after spending a lot of time in Gandon, I became less and less sure that it was warranted to classify Laos as post-socialist. If you look at Lao language sources, which I did in this study and others, socialism, the word, Sancom you still expect to see it, for instance, in the motto of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party. They released a different motto for each year and, you know, the one that was released, the final line of it is sort of onwards towards socialism, exclamation mark, you know. So in official pronouncements, socialism is still there. Socialism is a goal. It's an aspiration. And that's true for the party and the party state as much as it is for the way it permeates down into everyday villages like the ones I met in Gandan. I don't think socialism should be thought as a sort of one size fits all, you know, like, oh, if there's not collectivised agriculture, then it's not socialism. I'm not saying anybody does that, but that's certainly a trap that we should not fall into. We should be asking, what do people mean by socialism? And what, are the measures of success that they set up for achieving this. And if you read the writings of Gaison Ponvihan, who was the leader of the movement in Laos, who sort of came out of the woodworks and became the prime minister and president of Laos through the, 80s and 90s, his phrase was socialism has in Laos has to be creative and correct. So by correct, he meant dong like it has to go according to doctrine, but creative meant that it has to innovate solutions on the ground according to what's appropriate in Laos and what's appropriate in each situation. So I think if if you see that Laos has always been both aspirational and creative, you can understand that these different waves of policy that are evident on the ground in Laos don't mean that socialism is being thrown out the window. This is actually part of the socialist approach is to constantly keep striving and critiquing what's been done
1: and looking for new ways to achieve it. And a concept that you bring in when you're talking about this is the practice of emulation. Why is emulation important in Laos and how does it relate to the Leninist concept of vanguardism?
0: Mm. There are deep historical roots to emulation. So as far back as the early um, communist grassroots organising that was going on in Vietnam and then these emulation drives were mirrored in the movement in Laos as well. Now why these or even if these were successful, I can't be sure. But what I do know is that I see evidence of emulation in a lot of different facets of policy in Laos. Each of the different line ministries like health, education, culture and propaganda, all of these different ministries will have systems of awards, systems of recognition for people who are doing well. It's not uncommon to go into somebody's house in rural Laos and see, all of these certificates on the wall and if you look at them they're certifications of having achieved a certain level in a in a ranking thing like women's three goods achieved to a certain level and then there's also awards for recognition for outstanding achievements so that's at a household level and then you have it at the village level so if a certain amount amount of houses get a certain certificate like I think it's 80 percent of the houses are certified as achieving something then they get that recognition on a village level so then it can become like a women Three Goods village or a a safe and clean village or a model healthy village and all of these things. So there's intensive use of recognition and awards to try and encourage people into doing the right thing rather than punish people for doing the wrong
1: thing. In some ways then we could possibly argue that Lao socialism isn't so different to global practices of developmentalism because if we think about it emulation is also a really important part of the developmentalist project. So can you... Reflect perhaps a bit on what the Lao case tells us about developmentalism more broadly. Yes,
0: yeah, so I, in one chapter, I just remind me that I I, for, I didn't yet get to your question about Leninist vanguardism, but I can come back to that if you remind me. So in one chapter, I had the opportunity of comparing sort of the arrival of an international developmentalist view of emulation and watching how that was translated into approaches that were palatable and familiar in a Lao context. So. The this was a community-led sanitation project. So, um, oh, sorry, I'm leaving out total. Community-led total sanitation is an international approach that was developed in Bangladesh, I think, first, which is about encouraging people to have toilets and it's sort of anti the subsidy approach. So the storyline runs a bit like this. In the past, people wanted everyone to have a toilet. And the way they went about trying to achieve this was that they would give toilets to people or they would give people enough money so that they could buy a toilet and that this notoriously didn't work. And you ended up with all of these latrines around that weren't maintained and weren't used and weren't very useful for anything. So... Kamal Karl, I think is the name of the man who developed this alternative approach. He did participatory interventions with people like walking around their fields and the location of the village and drawing a map and noting down every time they saw an open defecation, which means like a, a visible poo, either human or animal sitting there. And he did things like putting a plate of food next to a plate of feces and showing people how the flies, flit from one to the other. And all of these things, the word is triggering. They're meant to trigger an emotional response in people. And then they're meant to be so triggered that they then just go out and build their own toilets because they want them. So this approach has been criticized as extremely neoliberal in its outlook and other things, but it's been quite influential globally. So part of the part of this approach is that once a village is triggered and everybody successfully builds their own toilets, then they're used as a model and other villages are invited to come and hear their story. So Gandon was one of these villages. It was the first open defecation-free village in Lao PDR. So that meant that they were the first village in Laos to achieve certification of having everybody has a toilet and they're using it um, and maintaining it properly. So, I saw a lot of sort of training meetings occurring in the village where other villagers were shipped in, sort of bussed in to talk to WEPAT and others about how they achieved this and learn from them. And I was able to hear WEPAT talk about this and compare that to the sort of English language documentation about how this is meant to. Happen. So I think the important modification is that we Pat would say things like, you know, we held a village meeting and and we said to people, do you all want to have toilets? And of course everybody said yes. Well, some people didn't say yes, but though they were in the minority, so you can see democratic centralism working there. Most people wanted a toilet, so we all agreed and we and we made a village-based resolution that we would all get toilets. So that's democratic centralism working. there. they have a meeting, they consult with everybody, they seek a majority decision. And then the minority just have to fall in with that. There is no dissent allowed after that. And then he would say things like, of course, we checked it with the district first. You can't just make a resolution on your own. You have to consult with the centre. You have to consult with the leaders. So that, again, is showing the really hierarchical decision-making chain in Laos. So people are given freedom to make things like village-level ordinances, that's a level of local autonomy that I can't even dream of here in Australia. I'll imagine getting together with everybody else in my neighbourhood and making up our own law. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. But it does happen in Laos. There are such a thing as village level ordinances which are binding and they do have this autonomy but it's always phrased as being in line with the hierarchy and never never out of step with the center so that does take us to what you're asking about before about vanguardism and I argued in my book that if Laos is socialist and I argued that it is the kind of socialist it is 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 vanguard socialism Because there is this constant deferral to a leadership elite who set the direction and broad goals of policy, and these must be adhered to, you know. And when people talk about success, it has to be phrased within the terms allowed for in these broad directions set by the vanguard.
1: You've brought us back to Wipat, and I'd like to actually finish there with a question that really sits at the heart of ethnographic methodology, you found Weepat to be charming and very helpful, but at the same time he proved to be a relentless gatekeeper. Can you finish by reflecting on his behaviour and what it tells us about the politics of gatekeeping in ethnographic research? Gatekeeping, that's
0: a really interesting question. Yes. So I have a lot of mixed feelings about Weepat. Over time he encouraged me to call him older brother and he called me younger sister. When I brought my children there, They would play with his grandchildren, he would bring his grandchildren over deliberately so my kids would have someone to play with when the other children were too shy to come. A lot of things have happened in the years that we've known each other. We, we took that hike into the mountains together, which was an incredible experience. And in total, I can say that this research project would not have gone ahead if we Pat had not supported it. And he spent countless hours with me, telling me in detail about the village history and myths and, and folk, tales and explaining the marriage system to me and all of these other incredible things which are it would trivialize it to say that i owe him a great debt it's it's well beyond that He's done an incredible service to anthropology by being so generous with his time and his explanations. And I sincerely hope that my research hasn't brought him any unhappiness, although I fear it has or, or it will, because in the end, I felt like the story that I could tell wasn't exactly the story he wanted me to tell. I think he was used to a system of authority where there is one right answer because of the vanguardism of Laos, it often seems like there is one true story to be told, that there is one definition of success. But the anthropology that I think is most true, and I do wanna do the best anthropology I can, is an anthropology that works with and acknowledges the fact that there are many different stories and they don't always add up to one coherent whole that, you know, two women coming from two closely related families can have two very different experiences of growing up in a resettlement village. There isn't just one answer and you've somehow got to capture that diversity. And this is nothing new in anthropology. Claude Lévi-Strauss himself said if you want to understand a myth You can't be searching for the one true version of the myth. You have to work with every single version of the myth you can get your hands on. So in the example I give in the book, when Wipat finished telling me a folktale I automatically would then go and ask other people if they'd heard of this folktale and would they tell me their version of it? (laughs) And he was incensed by this. He he said, you know, I've already given you the correct version. Why are you going and talking to other people? You know, they'll probably give you the wrong version and then you'll have mistakes in your book. And he didn't want me to have any errors. He wanted the book to be correct, tuk dong. (laughs) But there isn't one correct way to write about social situations. You know, this is my dogma in a way. This is the dogma of Western anthropology, which is, you know, saturated with a commitment to relativism. And that links back to what I spoke about earlier about the definition of culture that each of us was working with. For me, cultures vary and they're all beautiful in their own way, sort of thing. Whereas for him, cultures have a teleology and they're all heading to one shared point of aspiration. And what makes us different is just how far advanced we are along getting on the road to getting there but there is one good and true goal that we're all headed for so I had to work with that as part of what I had to display cultural relativism towards like could I participate in and and come to see his worldview and take it seriously and not dismiss it um, but still have room in the text for other people's views as well.
1: And I think you achieved that very well. Well, thanks, Holly. That's a great place to finish. But just before we wrap up, I'd also like to ask you about your new Future Fellowship Project on Birthing Practices. Just briefly, could you tell us what you hope to achieve and how it's going?
0: Oh, thanks, Michelle. It's a fascinating topic. Um, yeah, so I'm looking at maternal health in Laos and I'm currently applying for research permission. And so while I'm waiting for that to be processed, I'm reading lots of biographies of women and creative writing by Lao women and discovering some incredible and moving stories about people's experiences. So I can share that I'm reading the biography of Gaison Pombihan's wife, who was married to him when she was 14 years old after leaving her parents to join the revolution? And it's a very confronting story. It shows just what is entailed for people when they join a movement that is all about the collective and where that leaves the individual and their choices and their desires. Even Gaisson Pombihan, he was not able to marry the woman he loved. He had to marry the woman he was assigned. So, yeah, there's some
1: incredible stories in there. And I think it will be a great book number three. Sounds really interesting and all the best for that. Holly, hi. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss Project Land, Life in a Lao Socialist Model Village. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again soon for another conversation.